Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church again. I'm always encouraged by our time of worship and music. The songs we sing are chosen specifically because of the rich lyrics which that glorify the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In John 4.23, the Lord Jesus said that true worshipers will worship or worship the Father in spirit and truth. And do you realize that according to that scripture, the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers? And also, do you realize that the Holy Spirit works in and among those who glorify the Father and the Son in true worship? We glorify the Lord when the truth, when the truth of the Word of God informs the content of our worship. We bring glory to Him when we live according to His, His Word. This is true, church, this is true of our worship and music, and it's also true of our worship and preaching and teaching the Word of God. Here at GBC, at Grace Bible Church, we're committed to the exaltation of God in all that we say and all that we do. This commitment, though, should extend not only on Sunday morning when we gather, but it should extend to how we live every day before the throne of God. Now, last week we started a new sermon series that we've called Family Matters. I hope you recognize that your family, your specific family, matters to God. And as such, you should understand that family is actually God's idea from the very beginning. Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And Genesis 2 teaches that God intended man and the woman to have a one-flesh relationship. He also designed the man and the woman to have specific roles within the marriage structure. And to the extent that we live accordingly, our marriages and our families will flourish. Cultures will flourish to the extent that they encourage the one flesh union between male and female. Churches that uphold the truth of God's word regarding marriage thrive even in the face of opposition. This is the reason, this is why Satan has attacked God's plan for marriage and family from, literally from the very beginning. Elizabeth Elliot recognized this in an article she titled, Let Me Be a Woman. She stated, the first woman was made specifically for the first man, a helper to meet, respond to, surrender to, and compliment him. God made her from the man out of his very bone. Then he brought her to the man, and when Adam named Eve, he accepted responsibility to husband her, to provide for her, to cherish her, and protect her. These two people together represent the image of God. One of them, in a special way, the initiator, the other, the responder. Neither the one nor the other was adequate alone to bear the divine image. It's profound, is it not? God put these two in a perfect place. And you know the rest of the story. Even her refusal to accept the will of God refused her femininity. Adam, in his capitulation to her suggestion, 
abdicated his masculine responsibility for her. It was, the, it was this first instance of what we would recognize now as role reversal. This defiant, and I want you to get this, this defiant disobedience ruined the original pattern, and things have been an awful mess ever since, end quote. And I think if you're looking at this objectively, if you're looking at this world objectively, you would realize that we are in an awful mess. And I hope that you can see that Satan attacked the very essence of God's plan for the man and the woman. And he continues to attack the one flesh relationship to this day. And I would suggest that, it was, that it's the main focus of his assault on God, God's sovereignty and our, actually, in our humanity. That, that's the focus of his t- attack on that one flesh relationship. And I pray today's study will help you see this. With that, let's dive back into our study in Ephesians 5 this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the passage, and we'll get started. Our gracious Lord, we come to you again thanking you for our time of worship and song and prayer and reading the Word this morning. May this time of worship through preaching, may this time be pleasing to you. May we grow through the reception of the Word as your Holy Spirit works in the hearts of each hearer here. May you work in my own heart this morning as I preach. Give me clarity of mind and heart to be able to teach clearly your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read read Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Follow along, along in your own text. Paul writes, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the matter, or is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. On January 3, 1956, Jim Elliott, along with four other missionaries, began Operation Anka. Their objective was to reach the Wadani tribe of Ecuador. Just a few days later, on January 6th, they made successful contact with members of the tribe. Their contact was incredible because no one who had tried to contact this tribe in the past, before that, had lived to tell the tale. On Sunday morning, January 8th, members of the Wadani tribe returned to Palm Beach, is what they dubbed it, with spears. They attacked and brutally killed the missionaries. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Yadarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCulley all went to be with the Lord on that morning. Before this faithful day, Jim Elliott once said in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. End quote. You see, Jim Elliott and the others gave their lives on that beach to reach this primitive tribe with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would argue that the most incredible part of the story happened a couple of years later. Jim was married to a lady named Elizabeth Elliott. Jim and Elizabeth, Elizabeth were both missionaries who had met at the Moody College and were married in Ecuador. 
They had one daughter, Valerie. After Jim's death, Elizabeth and Valerie and Rachel Saint learned the language of the Wadani people from tribe members living with them. Incredibly, they traveled into the jungle to live with the tribe that killed Jim and the other men. Just listen to this letter written by Elizabeth as she contemplated this coming journey. She writes, Dear friends, many of you, many of you know that three of the Anka women returned to their tribe one month ago. Last week, the women returned, bringing seven of the tribe and an invitation to Rachel Saint and me to return with them to their tribe to live. I'm writing this hoping that by the time you receive it, we shall be living with the very people responsible for killing my husband, Rachel's brother, and three other men. Dayuma says that six of the seven men who did the killing are there waiting for us, end quote. As you think about this, Jim's quote should be ringing in your ears. It goes without saying, then, that Elizabeth Elliot was a very strong woman. She was very courageous in the Lord. The dynamics of this tribe were such that these women could make further contact with them, and most likely this contact was possible because they had built a relationship with the women, and they were not, as women, a threat to the men. Apparently, even among the tribe, there was some differing opinions about the killing of the missionaries among the men. So the men were discussing this, this, what happened, and there was some disagreement. Therefore, Elizabeth and Rachel were able, in Elizabeth's words, and I quote her, to simply take the next step, the thing required at the moment. Now, I tell this story to highlight something that may or may not be evident to you. In this case, God used these women to continue his work after he took their husbands and after he took the men, that is, to be with them, to be with him. You know, in, in our modern society, we may picture Elizabeth as a feminist who thrived in a man's world. But if you think that, according to her own words, if you think that, you could not be further from the truth. As an illustration of this, listen to Elizabeth's account about teaching in a church. She says this, One of the very first duties that faced me was that in the world I was going, what, it was, what in the world was I going to do with the church? We had 50 newly baptized believers, Christians, who a year before had not been Christians. Jim Elliott had been teaching them daily and preaching on Sundays. He was not there anymore. There was no other male missionary. Now, I happen to be a very firm believer that in the, in, that in the church, men should take leadership. I believe that God has clearly defined the positions of authority both in the home and the church as belonging to men. So whether you agree with me on that or not, let's just say that I get my ideas from the Scriptures, and that, that's where I had to start when I got back to my little jungle station. I was not going to run that church, but I was literally the only person around who had the Scriptures, and there was nobody else who could teach those believers. So I took two young men that Jim had picked as potential leaders in the church, and I explained to them that it was not my job to be head of the church. It was their job to take that responsibility. I said, I'm here to help you. So on Saturday afternoons, I would help these men, and they would get up and preach not a very good sermon, 
I could have done a much better job, but I felt that it was not my job to take over the church simply because I was competent to do it. It was my job to encourage these men so that they would become competent, end quote. Brothers and sisters, Elizabeth Elliot was a woman, according to her own words, was a woman committed to the truth of Scripture. And the biblical concept of male headship in the marriage and in the church. Just compare this to the words of Beth Moore, speaking of the biblical teaching of complementarianism, which Elizabeth Elliot actually supported. She says this, I beg your forgiveness where I was complicit, complicit to allowing men to, to be leaders. I could not see it for what it was until 2016. She's speaking of the, the election of Donald Trump. I plead for forgiveness for how I just submitted to it and supported it and taught it. Now, church, I don't think the contrast between these two women could be more clear. I want you to know that that the countercultural nature of the Bible's teaching on marriage and the, the Bible's teaching on male headship is not lost on me. I'm convinced that the current attack on marriage centers on what has been described as an epidemic of abuse in marriage. But I'm also convinced that the, the abuse that we witness within marriages results from an abandonment of God's plan. It's actually an abandonment of God's plan. God's plan for the one flesh relationship. In other words, <clears throat> let me say it this way. Those who point to abuse as the reason we should abandon the truth of God's word regarding marriage aren't acknowledging that abuse actually illustrates a prior departure from biblical truth. Departing from the truth of God's word in this fashion is akin to saying, I ate food that made me sick, therefore I should stop eating altogether. No, it, it, it's the spoiled food that you ate that made you sick, and you should avoid that in the future. In the same way, abuse always comes from a wrong understanding of God's intent. A wrong understanding of His intent. Let me say it this way. I'm going to say it even stronger. Abuse will never happen. Abuse will never happen where two people diligently pursue God's pattern for marriage. It'll never happen. Never. But notice I said where two people, where there's two people who are pursuing God's pattern for marriage. Therefore, you can't point to abuse as the reason to abandon the truths of God's word, which guide us and keep us from experiencing these terrible situations. With food, I use as an analogy, with food we take extra care, right, to ensure that food poisoning doesn't occur. You know, if we get sick from food poisoning, we don't go eat that same mayonnaise again, right? We make sure we put the mayonnaise on ice. Well, when there's abuse in, in the marriage, it's the pursuit of God's Word that preserves that marriage. As Christians, we must recognize that God instituted marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, let's do a quick review of where we are in Ephesians, then we'll turn to Genesis 1 before we return back to Ephesians. So two weeks ago, we, started, we studied the last of four instructions 
for the walk of wisdom. To walk in wisdom, we must reflect our roles clearly. Now, this is also the final result of being filled with the Spirit. If you look at 521, Paul writes, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So in 521, we learned that to reflect your role clearly, we need to, we need to be in the correct submission. In other words, we must recognize our role and submit to those who God has put in authority, into authority over us. Now, you should understand that the flesh, make sure I say this clearly, the flesh will never desire to respond in this way. It's a supernatural response. It's a result, this response, and it's clear in the text, this, result, this response is the result of the Spirit's filling. Now, this response is also conditioned by having a correct stimulus. The correct stimulus is a reverential fear of Christ. We honor Christ when we submit to those He has placed in authority over us. The stimulus applies to those in authority as well. When Christ places us in authority, we must understand that he, he, he alone will hold us accountable. He'll hold us accountable for our actions and our attitudes toward those who have, we've been placed in authority over. Now look at your text in 5.22. We've specifically, Paul has specifically, that is, specifically focused on the wives to begin with. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. In 5.22, Paul begins to apply the principles taught in 5.21 to the family, including wives, husbands, and children. And he'll also apply them to slaves and masters. Now, starting in 5.22 and 23, Paul implores the wives to submit to their own husbands. Then he gives them three clear motivations for this appeal. He says you should submit, he tells the wives, you should submit to your own husbands because of your connection to Christ. Now we looked at that first, this first motivation last week. Paul calls for the wives to be subject or submit to their own husbands. And then he, then he says, or then he, well, he actually starts with them. So we see then that, they have, that the wives, the women play a pivotal role within the family. I don't think it's a stretch to say that our wives are the glue that holds our families together. As such, we can measure the spiritual tone within our families by the actions and attitudes of our wives. I think this is why Paul starts with women. He recognizes the critical importance of the woman's role within the family structure and within the marriage. Now, you've heard it said, I know I have, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? I believe this is true because I believe it's true because the, the ladies have so much influence over the family, including the husband. I know that my, my wife, Angie, has a massive influence on the spiritual temperature of our home. Now, we have to be clear. A woman's influence can be damaging if the woman is what? Contentious. Or it can be uplifting if she is walking in wisdom and filled with the Spirit. Now, I believe the, the Proverbs capture both truths. In Proverbs 19.13, it says a contentious, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. In Proverbs 21.9, it said it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, these verses capture the truth that our wives can make a home almost unlivable if they live in ungodliness. 
But then again, we have Proverbs 31, which depicts the warmth of a home shared with a godly woman. And Proverbs 31, 25, it says, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel, you excel them all. I know it's dangerous territory for a man to compare his wife to the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, many men, I would caution you not to ask your wife why she's not more like her. I don't do that. And most women will tell you, though, will tell you that the, the Proverbs 30 woman, 31 woman seems to be an impossible standard. I'm sure that if most of the ladies here were uh, to tell you the truth, and I'm sure they would, uh, they would, they hover somewhere between Proverbs 21.9 and Proverbs 31.10, the contentious woman and the Proverbs 31 woman. Here's the, here's the, here's the key, though. Ladies, I, I want to speak directly to you. Your connection to Christ is critical. When you fail, it's Christ who gives you grace. When you succeed, it's Christ who, what, lives in you. Let me tell you, the Proverbs 31 woman is not your standard. She's not, she's not your standard. Who's, who's your standard? Christ. He's the standard for us all, is He not? Yet, He gives help in the time of need. He gives grace when we need that we need when we continually fall short. So when your husband says, why aren't you more like the Proverbs 31 woman? I just tell you to ask him, why aren't you more like Christ? Hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you can thank me later. <laughs> Back in 522, Ephesians 522, Paul writes, Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. According to Paul, submission to your husband indicates submissiveness to the Lord. Ladies, I promise you that the godliest man ever to live, other than Christ, will fall short of your expectations. Therefore, this truth is critical, absolutely critical to understand. When you humbly and fully subject yourself to your husband, you exhibit that your true allegiance ultimately lies in Christ Jesus. It's him to whom you are ultimately obedient. Regarding this, I like this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. She says, a wife, if she is very generous, may allow that her husband lives up to about 80% of her expectations. There is always the other 20% that she would like to change, and she may chip away at it for the whole of her married life without reducing it very much. She may, on the other hand, simply decide to enjoy the 80%, and both of them will be happy. I think that's a great quote. Ladies, you can enjoy the 80% when you recognize that your ultimate submission is to Christ. You can truly enjoy your husband. Because of Christ, for he alone is the 100% man, the perfect man. This leads us to the second motivation for submitting to your own husbands. 
You should submit to your own husbands because of your comprehension of because of your comprehension of creation. This is verse 23, the first part, the first phrase. And I want to focus on this this morning. Here Paul gives a principle that he draws from creation. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1 as I show you this. Some of you long-time, some of you long-time attendees, members, will probably chuckle because I often take things back to Genesis 1 through 11. I believe that Genesis 1 through 11, especially, uh, especially the first three chapters, are crucial to the understanding the Bible and understanding the character of God and developing a truly biblical worldview. Sadly, many so-called intellectual Christians have seeded over, seeded these chapters to the realm of science. They have embraced an evolutionary worldview that seems to be more intellectual. They have written off as simpletons folks who take a literal approach to the to creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. And by the way, unless in case you didn't know, I personally take a literal approach to Genesis chapters 1 through 11. God created the world in six days, and then he destroyed it by flood. I take that to be literal. As such, those who take it, take science to be of a greater import, have fallen for the promise of greater knowledge and understanding, but that knowledge is not from above, but from below. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the creation account where God created the, the world in six days, and on the sixth day, He created man. And in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27, God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our image and according to our likeness, and let them rule. It's important to understand that. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Just a few days ago, a man in London was arrested for preaching Genesis 1.27. It's called hate speech because he was preaching that God created male and female. So if I were standing in London right now, I'd probably be deemed to be preaching hate. In verse 27, we find that God created mankind in his own image. We find that he created them male and female. This truth then fits with the rest of God's creation. God made each plant and each animal according to its kind. In other words, dogs can't become alligators. Trees don't become grass. But cows can turn grass into beef. That's supposed to be a joke. In verse 27, we see that males and that males cannot become female or vice versa. In verse 28, we see two purposes for man. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created them, the, the, the male and the female. He created man to fill the earth and to rule over it. And in 131, God completed his creation on the sixth day, and he called it very good. 
for our context, his magnificent creation, his very good creation, included the concept of male and female. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the account of the creation of the first man and woman. In 2.7, it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the, the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then it says in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now in 2.9, if you look at 2.9, he says there, there, it shows two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, the point here is that the Lord God made man responsible for his creation, for the garden. Later, God gave the priest a similar responsibility to the tabernacle. Therefore, I would argue that God gave man, man responsibility as priest and ruler or king. Then in Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now we should notice that these things happened prior to God creating the woman. Therefore he gave this responsibility and expectation to the man, not the woman. And in 2.18 it says, The Lord God says to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, first, what you need to see is that God first created the man and said it is not good, not good for man to be alone. The, this description is not, of not good is crucial because on day six, God said, as it was completed, God said that his creation was what? Very good. So there are two things that we should two things that we should draw out of this. First, God created the man and the woman on day six, thus completing his creative work. Second, and just as important, the man needed the woman. She was of equal importance to him. She was of equal importance in fulfilling God's mandate to multiply and fill the earth. Without Eve, Adam could not have carried out God's design for creation. Now we must recognize that the Hebrew word translated helper suitable in the NAS means one corresponding to. The NET translates this phrase, the NET, the uh, New English translation, is a companion for him who corresponds to him. This word reflects a nuance of correspondence or suitability that cannot be understood fully by the, by the word partner, which, by the way, the word partner has been hijacked. The Net Bible notes put it, puts it this way. The man's form, that's his physical form, and nature are matched by the woman's as she reflects him and complements him. Together they correspond. In short, this prepositional phrase indicates that she has everything that God had invested in him. You could say it this way. She is exactly the same, but completely different. In this context, the word expresses the idea of an indispensable companion. The Lord God created the woman to supply all that the man lacked. 
And although not explicitly stated, he created the man to supply all that the woman lacked or needed. We see in 2.29 that before God created the woman, he brought all the land animals and birds to Adam to name them. Now this act is significant for two reasons. First, naming the animals signified Adam's rulership. God gave Adam the, his dominion over his creation. Second, second thing that this indicates, this second reason this is significant, that is, is it clearly showed, that, showed Adam that the animals were not like him. He was truly alone, and he truly needed a companion. When we consider God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it also becomes apparent that God made Adam responsible for all his creation, which included the woman. Now, understanding this truth becomes critical as we consider Genesis 3. But starting in 2.21, we see the account of God's creation of the woman out of the man. And in 2.22, God presents the bride in all her glory to the man. Now that glorious scene gets reenacted at almost every Christian wedding, does it not? As the bride's father presents her to the groom. In 2.23, we see the man names the woman. And that act of naming signifies a recognition of headship. A recognition of headship. In other words, God made Adam responsible for the woman. Now that concept then ties back to Ephesians 5.23, where Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, headship in this context is not mere authority over the woman to do what he pleases. That's where we have to get this right. It's not a mere authority over the woman to do what he pleases. The call is to take loving responsibility for the woman. It is a divine calling that God gives to every husband, especially every Christian husband. And in this act of giving Eve to the, to the man, God calls Adam to love and care for her as his helpmate and companion. John Piper says, Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like, Servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. End quote. You see, God divinely called Adam to care for, protect, and provide for Eve in every way. And as such, as such, he calls for every husband to care for and protect their wives in the same way. But as in Genesis chapter 3, as I said earlier, this is where the attack came. In Genesis 3, Adam utterly failed. Adam utterly failed. The serpent came into God's pristine creation, and instead of vanquishing the serpent, Adam allowed the serpent to deceive the woman. Notice in Genesis 3, 6, the text says that Adam was with her. That's shocking. Shocking. I take that to mean that he witnessed, some people differ, but I take that to mean that he witnessed, that Adam witnessed this whole exchange between the serpent and the woman. And he did nothing to stop it. 
He did nothing to stop it. He knew the truth. He, God had, been t- had told him what not to do, and he did nothing to stop this situation. Therefore, the blame lies entirely with Adam because, uh, because God had given him, given him responsibility for the woman. Yet Adam and Eve would share the consequences. Eve would experience great pain in the bearing of children. And because of the curse, she would experience this pain in childbirth. But she would also, the woman would also experience the brunt of the grief from the rearing of the children. Cain is a sad example of the sorrow the woman uniquely feels with wayward children. If you are a mother and you felt that sorrow as your, as your children go wayward, you know what I'm talking about. Many argue that 3.16, Genesis 3.16, signifies that she will try to usurp her husband's authority, yet he will rule over her, meaning that he will use his strength to control her. And from that point forward, God also cursed the ground so that Adam would have to toil to support his family. And both of them would taste death. Now, I find it very sad when I see women bearing the curse by themselves. They work to support their children and they, they work to raise them with no help from the man who fathered them. Sad, sad case of, of dereliction of duty, duty with the men. I want you to notice something. What was the point of attack? We've already talked about it. Was it not the one flesh relationship of Adam and Eve? Satan attacked their divinely bestowed relationship, and he also attacked Adam's headship over Eve. Is this not the same pattern of of attack that we see today? He whispers in the woman's ear, you can do everything a man can do. You You can be successful in the world of work. You're not worth anything if you don't have a career. You, you, you can take control of this marriage. You don't need to submit to your husband. Look at his imperfections. Look at how bad he is. You don't need to put up with him. You can live on your own. Leave him. You could even start a relationship with another woman. She'll better understand your needs. You can even become a man if you want. Take the hormones. Get the surgeries done. What's stopping you? He whispers in the man's ear, you don't have to put up with this. Throw yourself into your career. Don't don't worry about your family. They can care for themselves. Your wife is nothing but a nuisance. A nuisance that you need to dominate. She doesn't fulfill your needs. You can go elsewhere to get those fulfilled. You can find those desires fulfilled in pornography and strange women. And for some of you, women aren't enough. You think you need another man who is just as amorous as you. Together, you can fulfill all your fleshly desires. And if that's not enough, then you can even become a woman and live out your fantasies. Don't hold back. Be all you want to be. Beloved, we cannot fall for these lies. 
These are lies from the pit of hell. As a church, we must stand up and tell the truth. We must stand up in the face of this culture who tells us that what I just said is hate speech. That, that I'm being hateful toward those who are in these situations. I'm not being hateful, beloved. I'm loving them by telling them the truth. This world needs Christ. We need Christ. We need the Gospel, which tells us that we can find our true satisfaction in Him and Him alone. In Him we can have marriages that reflect His character. Through the Gospel, He restores our brokenness. Ladies, ladies, you need Christ who alone can reveal your worth. You are valuable in His eyes. You are unique. You are of equal value and worth as any man. He will teach you to appreciate your husband and submit to him. You can trust him even when your husband fails to care, protect, and provide for you. See, that is, church, that is a spirit-filled response that can only happen when we trust in Christ. I've depended a lot on Elizabeth Elliot, and I'll continue to do so this morning. She says this, The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian. But the fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. End quote. My prayer is that you, each and every one of you, ladies, would be a different kind of woman. One who places her trust in a trustworthy Savior. He will not disappoint. Your husband will, to some degree, but he won't. He will not disappoint you. I want to pray now. We're going to turn our time to observe the Lord's table. Gracious Lord, we thank You this morning and praise You that I hope and pray this morning that Your Word has been very clear, especially to our ladies. This is not an instance of a man standing up here and calling for submission to men. It's truly an understanding of the worth that each and every one of our ladies have in Christ. Father, I pray for the men that they would understand, and we know that later in your text, in the text of Ephesians, we're going to really go through this But for now, I pray that the men would consider the responsibility that they have to care for their families, to care for their wives, to protect their wives, to love their wives, to uphold the truths of God's Word in their homes. Oh, the world tries to tell us that these truths are a problem. May we not fall for those lies. 
May we understand and see the beauty of marriage. The beauty of husbands and wives living together. Husbands living in an understanding way. Wives being submissive. But yet both being fellow heirs of the grace of life. We praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.